welcome if perhaps you are worshiping with us, uh, visiting family or friends on this holiday weekend. Happy July 4th, happy 4th of July, happy Independence Day, happy birthday America. There are so many things to say. They all mean the same thing. Uh, so from my heart to yours in Canada, it's just really easy. Happy Canada Day. We just leave it at that and we move on. Uh, but there's all kinds of ways to express this, and as Ryan prayed, and I do hope uh, that you do have a chance to gather with family and friends and enjoy uh, a celebration uh, this weekend. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 11. Psalm 11, really right in the middle of your Bibles. As you're turning there, and as we begin this summer series in the Psalms, I do have here, these are Psalms journals. They're in the bookstore. Many of you have purchased these in the past for our, our various sermon series. Uh, this is rather thick because Psalms is a rather thick book. There's 150 of them. Uh, but this is a great way the, the uh, text of the psalm is printed there, and then there's a page there as well that you can take notes. And so uh, you may find these handy. These are in our bookstore, and I'll just alert you to those this morning. If you're able to, please stand as I read Psalm 11. Psalm 11, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated and would you join me in prayer? Our great God and heavenly Father, I ask now that you would give us grace. We need your grace as we turn our attention to your word. We are reminded, O oh God, that this is your word, it's not ours. I need your grace that I would speak only what is true, only what is edifying, what is helpful to build up your people. Give us all who listen, not just the ability to, to hear certain points and to, to read certain words, but in fact, O oh Lord, we need to hear the voice of Jesus speaking to us. That's our great burden this morning. We need to hear your voice, Lord. So remove the clutter, remove the distractions, work in and through the clutter and the distractions, I pray, and speak because we are listening. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What do you do when the world around you seems to be falling apart? What should you do when it seems like the very foundations of civilized life are systematically threatened, if not overthrown completely? What should godly people do when perhaps our prayers sound a lot like David's prayer here in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, Lord, what can the righteous do? 
many of us are asking those same questions in our day. Certainly we can rejoice in the recent Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, and we do, yet the truth is there will still be thousands of abortions this year. Pornography is still rampant on the internet. Wars break out in one part of the world with very little response, it seems like, from the rest of the world. Human trafficking of young children continues to increase. Same-sex marriage is on the rise. And as you well know, we are now defining and having to redefine what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, what gender actually is. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's a sobering question to consider, especially on this 4th of July holiday weekend where I trust many of you are gathering with family and friends, maybe to take in some fireworks, to enjoy some good food, as you do celebrate the many blessings that come from living in this country. But sadly, as Gay Pride Month in June has revealed, we don't really know what it is we should be celebrating anymore. And we really don't know why. Even America's favorite pastime, baseball. Like, does it get any more American than baseball? Even baseball's not immune from this sort of confusion. A couple weeks ago, maybe you read this as well, I read of a Tampa Bay Rays pitcher named Jason Adams. He's a committed Christian. He opted out of the Tampa Bay Rays Pride Night uniforms. It included a rainbow on the sleeve and on his hat. And he told a reporter, and I'm quoting now, he said, my decision wasn't political at all, but I just felt uncomfortable wearing something that celebrates something Jesus does not encourage. Just like Jesus tells me, a heterosexual guy, to abstain from sex outside of marriage. It's no different. Oh, but it is different. Sarah Spain, she's a reporter for ESPN, I'm quoting her now, she said, this is what happens when a privileged class isn't affected by things. This is not just about baseball. They, meaning everybody presumably who agrees with Jason Adams, they are trying to use religious exemptions to affect the opportunities, services, and resources available for people who are LGBTQ+. And so according to Sarah Spain, not wearing a patch is tantamount to bigotry. And it's participation then in a larger conspiracy to deny LGBTQ plus people certain human rights. So I guess baseball then is no longer simply about throwing a curveball or lining a double off the wall or a walk-off home run in the bottom of the ninth. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what do people like you and I do? What do godly people do? Puritan writer William Gurnell, hundreds of years ago, he wrote that troubled times are praying times. And so I guess we should be doing a whole lot more praying these days than we probably are. Psalm 11 is a psalm for our day. It is a psalm for our times. It is actually meant to bring us to our knees in prayer. In fact, for that matter, most of the psalms, in fact, all of the psalms are meant to do that. They're intended to 
to reveal our great dependence on God. They're intended to, to bring us to our knees in prayer, and I hope that over the course of our summer series here in the next nine weeks or so, that that will be the case, that we will, in absolute dependence on God, because maybe we're, that's the only thing that we know to do, that we will humble ourselves before God and to go before him in fervent prayer, maybe for the first time in a long time, maybe for the first time ever. But the Psalms will be our prayer book. They will be our guidebook, just as they have been for the saints who have gone before us over the centuries. Now, if you're just joining us this Sunday, we're taking a break from our series in the book of Mark. We're going to pick that back up in the fall, and we're going to spend our summer in the Psalms. If you were here last summer, we started last summer, Psalm number 1 through 10, and today we're picking up 11 through 19. Isn't that nice and easy? You don't have to guess. Like, what Psalm? It's just the next one. If you can count, you have a place here. But at the outset, and by way of review, you might be, you might be wondering, why, why devote such time in the Psalms? Why spend a summer rubbing our noses into the truth of God's word here in the Psalms? Well, there is actually much spiritual value. The Psalms are the most quoted book in the entire New Testament. In fact, during the last week of the earthly life of Jesus, he used Psalm 8, Psalm 118, Psalm 110, to silence the chief priests and the scribes when the early church was trying to figure out what do we do with Judas? How should we replace him? They turned to Psalm 69 for wisdom, for counsel. When Peter preached at Pentecost, he used Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 to actually teach about the resurrection of Christ. And so over and over and over again in the New Testament, in the life of Jesus, and in the early church, we see the Psalms showed up at some very monumental times in his life, Jesus' life, and in the lives of the early church. Centuries later, the Protestant reformer John Calvin, he wrote a commentary on the Psalms, all 150 of them. And he said that the Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. In other words, the Psalms expose our hearts before God. They give expression to, to our emotions, to all of our emotions. And we all have a lot of emotions, varied emotions, sometimes many emotions swirling around all at once. The Psalms, in one sense, they speak for us when we're not exactly sure how do we make sense of what we are thinking and feeling. Psalms engage our hearts, they engage our minds, our thinking and our feeling. And for some of you here, maybe, the Psalms might awaken your own emotions to respond to God and to respond to life, to the circumstances in your life in a way that would actually please Him. Beyond all that, or above all that, the Psalms are intended, brothers and sisters, to draw us to worship God. They're intended to, to help us worship God more fully, deeply, more sincerely, passionate worship. They, they stir us to worship God because the Psalms tell us about our great God. They reveal his character. They reveal his faithfulness over the centuries, over the millennia. They reveal God's great acts of deliverance for people a lot like you and a lot like me. Calvin again there's no book in which we are more perfectly taught the right manner of praising God or in which we are more powerfully stirred up to the performance of this religious exercise. What did he just say there? 
study the Psalms, to learn to worship God, and your soul will thank you. So brothers and sisters, if there's one thing that we can do as God's people, especially when we feel like the foundations of the world are shaking, we can commit ourselves to a moment-by-moment, ever-deepening, wholehearted worship of God. And Psalm 11 really helps us to do that. This psalm, you'll notice, says to the choir master of David. So it's, it's written for, really, one of the leaders which means that it is designed to be sung by the entire congregation. Much as we have already sung songs this morning, this song, Psalm 11, is meant to be sung by the entire congregation when they gathered on the Sabbath. Now beyond that, we're not exactly sure the immediate context. Some commentators think that this psalm was written while David was serving in King Saul's court. And if you remember, that was not a happy time for David. King Saul was plotting to kill him. Others are the opinion that perhaps David wrote this psalm when he was on the run, fleeing. Saul was chasing him in the wilderness. Now, to be sure, David has been known to run. He's been known to flee. There's lots of examples of that. But what's interesting here, in Psalm 11, David does not run. He does not flee. He stays put, as we would say. He refuses to do that. So I don't think this psalm is referencing any of those situations, I think it's, it's much broader. I actually don't think there is a specific immediate time and place that, that we are to, to kind of clue into here. I think broadly speaking, we should read this psalm or we should sing this song whenever we're surrounded by evil and wickedness, whenever we are feeling tempted to give up or to give in, and whenever we feel tempted to abandon the place that God has planted us. That's when we read a psalm like this. When you're feeling squeezed, when, when you're feeling the pressure hemmed in in a tight spot, that's when we read Psalm 11. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, Psalm 11 actually gives us our answer. Take refuge in God. Find your refuge in God. Find your soul's refuge in God. That's the counsel, the wise counsel from David here. And with that main theme, I want to break that down here in the time we have remaining, really into three lessons for us as we do this. Here's the first one. Take refuge in God even or especially when you're given some really bad advice. Take refuge in God, especially when you're giving some very bad counsel. This is verses one through three. In the Lord, David says, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They've fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Notice David takes refuge in God even as he has been given some, well, some very poor counsel. Really, verses 1 through 3, it's, it, it, it's almost a paraphrase, really, of a, of a conversation that, that David is having with close friends, maybe a trusted confidant, maybe even a counselor. And, and they're telling him, David, there's really nothing more you can do. The only thing you can do, David, is to flee. 
is to leave, to run away. Yes, the situation is that bad. In fact, David, it's like a hurricane is about to, to make land. And if a hurricane is about to make land, what do you do? You run. You get away. Flee like a bird, David, to your mountain. Now, that was really bad advice for David, but it's actually really bad advice corporately. It's for uh, the entire uh, nation of Israel here because the, the word flee there, it's in the plural. So it's not just to David. It's actually, by extension, to, to all the Israelites. And again, we don't know the specific context. We don't know the specific danger, but we do know that there was a rising tide of fear and despair that was crippling the nation of Israel. And so it seemed like they were out of options. So bad, verse 2, well, it's just a matter of time. I mean, the godly are in imminent danger. The bow is bent. The arrows are ready to fly. We would say today, well, the bullets are in the chamber and the finger is on the trigger. There's nothing you can do. You can't stop the inevitable. And I wonder if some of you wake up and on most of your days, that's kind of how you feel. I don't know that there is anything for the godly to do. It seems like this tidal wave, this hurricane is just ready to make land. David's friends, his confidence here are saying, David, the righteous are no more. I know you're righteous, David, but what you're facing is too extreme. It's too difficult. Run, hide, flee, get out while you still can. And David says, wow, that's great advice. I should take that. David says, wow, I hadn't thought about that before. No, he doesn't do that. David is not taking it. He does not flee. He actually chooses, verse 1, to take refuge in the Lord. That's his move, to take refuge in the Lord. Now, we shouldn't think this was easy for David. No doubt, he, he was tempted to flee. He's tempted to run away. He's tempted to abandon God. He's tempted to abandon the place that God had him because trusting God in that moment, in that time, didn't seem real wise. But David would not surrender to unbelief, and he wouldn't give in to the counsel, the bad counsel he was given. He, in fact, takes refuge in God. Now, this whole idea, brothers and sisters, of finding refuge in God or taking refuge in God, this is a main theme throughout the Psalms. Well over a third of the Psalms speak about this. And when the Psalms speak about finding refuge in God, it speaks of finding shelter, finding security, finding a safe haven in the Lord. So when the Bible describes God as our refuge, it's saying that God is our ultimate place of safety, that God is our ultimate protection from someone or something, anything really. It speaks of God as being our ultimate refuge, our ultimate protection, because only God can ultimately provide that kind of safety and security from life's dangers and from the misery of our sins. So the Psalms help us here when tempted to flee from the pressures of this life, to give ground, to give in, when we're tempted to, to flee like a bird to our mountain because we're feeling squeezed. The Psalms, in fact, call us to hide ourselves in God to find refuge in him and him alone. 
I don't need to tell you this, but our present culture, our present society offers us unlimited options if we are looking to find refuge, if we're looking for a, quote, safe place, if we're looking to flee like a bird to whatever mountain we want, food, drink, sex, entertainment, addictions, sports, social media, all manners of philosophies, all manners of psychotherapies. Flee to any one of these, we are told, and your soul will find refuge. Your soul will find a safe place. Your soul will be happy. You'll finally be content. And we're tempted. And all of those, that's really bad counsel. In fact, that's really poor advice. None of those are ultimate. Many of those things I mentioned can be blessings from God. They are gifts from God. But they are not to be our ultimate source of refuge. And so we face those temptations. It, it may be this morning that your greatest temptation is just to panic. Why find refuge in God? Why trust God when you can panic? It's easier. It's much more natural. Perhaps in the face of a, a world that is ever shaking your Temptation this morning may be, you know what, I just want to close my eyes. I want to put blinders on. I want to hunker down. I actually do want to live off the grid. I want to live away from people. I don't want to have any contact with people. Out of sight, out of mind. I'm just going to hunker down until Jesus returns. Well, that's going to be hard to be the light of the world if you're actually cut off from the world. Matthew 5, verse 14. Or perhaps... Maybe you're here today on this holiday weekend. What a wonderful day. Well, the sun was out. I don't know if it's going to be out, but it's kind of like this sermon. It's getting cloudy. <laughs> but maybe you're here and you're thinking, you know, I got a touch of nostalgia here. I, couldn't we just go back to when life was simpler 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago? Wasn't life simpler? What? And the answer is, well, no. I mean, it, it, people were wicked in the 1950s, too. And we human beings have been quite slow to figure out what our greatest problem really is. We're going on two millennia now. And we've been equally slow to turn to the God who actually can rescue us. Flee like a bird to your mountain. That's the temptation for all of us. And David here says, even when he's hearing that counsel, even when presumably trusted friends are telling him, David, get out, flee, He's turning to God. He's saying, I'm not doing that. I, he's the only one I can turn to. I'm finding my refuge in him. So David's response here it actually reminds me a lot of Peter's response to Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 68. This is a really interesting account. Jesus there had been teaching his disciples many things. Scripture says many hard things. Jesus was, in fact, telling them that, look, if you're going to follow me as my disciple, that, that's not a recipe for a quiet, casual, comfortable life. If you're going to follow me faithfully as my disciple, it's going to mean that you're going to have to suffer. It's going to mean that you're going to have to face persecution. And so as a result, many turned away. They said, Jesus, we can go this far, because up to this point, we've really liked what you've said, but that's a bridge too far for us. We're out. And many turned away from following Jesus. Jesus then presses into Peter, and he asks Peter, what, what do you think? And here's Peter's response. Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Go, Peter. Like, he doesn't get, he doesn't get a lot right. But when he does get it right, we ought to rejoice in that. I feel like we're a lot more like Peter than we want to admit. Peter just says, Lord, we don't have any other options here. Like, where else are we going to go? Of course, we're, we're, we're trusting in you, Lord. And I wonder, when, when the earth is shaking, or when it feels like it's shaking, and the foundations are being destroyed, where will you turn? Who will you go to if not Jesus? Had Jesus given in to the temptation to flee, to abandon the spot that God had called him to and the path that his heavenly father called him to, none of us would be saved. He wouldn't have died as our savior. For Jesus, his path led directly to the cross where he suffered and died on the cross for sins that he did not commit. He suffered and died for us. Jesus didn't abandon God. In fact, he trusted in his heavenly father. He, as he lived on this earth, he found refuge in his heavenly father, even if it meant that he would die for sins that he did not commit to purchase our very salvation. That's David's starting point here. In you, Lord, in you, I put my refuge. Here's the second lesson we learn. Take refuge in God because, precisely because, God is still ruling and God is still reigning. This is verses 4 through 6. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now, if you came in this morning thinking, you know, God is just sort of that big guy in the sky. He kind of doesn't have a, he just kind of sits back in heaven, kind of in his grandfatherly rocking chair. He just kind of lets things happen on earth, and then eventually maybe he'll intervene if it gets real bad, but he kind of just takes it easy. Well, this, these verses ought to correct that kind of thinking. Even when the foundations of the earth appear to be shaking, what's God doing? He's still ruling, David says. He's still reigning. And that's the reason why, brothers and sisters, David can be confident. David's confident in God's ability. God is still on his throne. David understands God's palace is in heaven, which means if it's in heaven, it is far above any earthly court. It's far above any government buildings here on earth. So no matter what is happening on earth, well, God is still in control. He is still ruling from heaven. And even if you and I make that determination, and some days, let's be honest, we do. Some days we wake up and we think, well, today is the day. I, I actually feel the shaking around me. Today is the day. We may not even make it through the day. What is God doing? He's still ruling. He is still reigning. He is not nervous. He's not in a panic. He's not trying to figure out what to do. He's not frightened. He is not anxious. Even more, it's not that he is just passively sitting by letting things happen either. 
Our God, this God, David's God, is never not actively ruling and reigning. How encouraging that must have been for David. How encouraging that must have been for the Israelites as they gather together in some bit of trouble when they're seeing the foundations closing in, when they're being squeezed. David sees God's active rule here and his active reign in two main ways. Look with me. Number one, verse four, God sees everything. God sees everything. Now the word here, it's interesting, it actually, it's almost like God squints. He, He scrutinizes, he gazes. In other words, God is paying attention. There's just an interesting phrase here. His eyelids test us. Now most theologians just take that to mean that that God's attention never, ever, ever wavers. Like God has no blind spots at all. There's nothing where any of the angels up in heaven have to like nudge God and say, did you just see that? Not at all. He sees everything. So even if his eyes are are closed or he's kind of squinting a little bit and it appears like, is he awake? Does he know what he's doing? He can still search the hearts and the minds of human beings. He's aware of everything that is going on. There's no detail in your life or in mine that is too small. He's aware of everything. Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and on the good. So especially church, when it seems like our Lord is maybe not doing anything, or maybe he's taking a long time, or maybe he's doing things that we don't really want him to do. He's not doing what we want him to do. He's still carefully evaluating and watching and ruling and reigning and seeing everything, seeing every person. Now, if you know this God personally, if this God is your wise, all-knowing, all-loving Heavenly Father, and you belong to him by faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, then this is a great comfort. Do you realize that? Whatever season of your life, whatever difficulty, there's no struggle that's outside of his gaze. He sees, he knows, he loves you. There's a great comfort in entrusting your life into the hands of this kind of God who's aware Even before you pray, he's aware of you and your needs. There's a great comfort if you know him as your heavenly father. But there should be great terror if you don't. If you do not know this God as your wise heavenly father, then you are still in your sins. And I would want to do everything I could to find out how I can know him. Turn from your sins, repent, and trust in Jesus. You don't want to be his enemy. Because not only does God see, God judges. That's the second thing David sees here. From his heavenly throne, God judges the evil and the good. Notice verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous. Now this testing, it's actually an an examination, really. This refining, it's the same concept there that we read about in other places in the Bible. It refers to the the precious testing of a metal, the, the proving of a precious metal. In other words, 
for the Christian, this is good. This is for our good. This kind of examination, this kind of testing is actually for our good. It's the kind of testing that, that Job endured. You remember the story of Job. He, God essentially, well, it was, it, was, it was almost like a do-over for Job. I'm going to take away everything because I really want to know, Job, where do your allegiances lie? It was the kind of testing that Job endured when God proved that Job really did love God more than life itself. So God really turned the heat up on Job. Why? To remove impurities from him. To refine his faith. To make his, his faith bolder and deeper than it was. In fact, to, to purify him. And brothers and sisters, that's what God is up to in your life and mine. He, he refines us. He tests us. And oftentimes that is with troubles. That is with hardships. That is with afflictions. Why? Because he loves you. Because he has at work to refine you. Because in the refining process, he's, he's melting away the hard edges or just the hard heart. And in the process, he is giving you and showing you more of himself. Because that's, that's what he desperately desires, that you and I would know him more than we do. That we would trust him more than we do. I know given that choice, most of us would say, you know, I, I, I want my faith to grow. I want to deepen my faith. Is there any other way to do that? Is there a, a, a little more comfortable way that maybe my faith can grow? Church, if we have the conviction that the Lord will use even the, the hard times, the troubling times, the difficult times, but that he's doing it because he loves us to, to remove the dross and remove the hard edges, to deepen our faith, to give us more of himself, well, then we'll see the hand of the Lord right in the middle of whatever difficulties and troubles we go through. The trials, the periods of examination, the testings that do come from the Lord, they're not, they're not for no reason. They're not purposeless. They're actually part of God's care plan for your heart, for your soul, and for your life. It's not just the righteous who are tested, though, is it? The wicked are also tested, they're judged. David says in verse 6 that at the core of God's innermost being is what? And this is hard, admittedly. Is his hatred toward the wicked. It's his hatred toward the violent. In other words, God is settled in his opposition to all those who do evil. He's, he's settled in his opposition to anyone who does evil. So God's judgment, church, this is not the stuff of fairy tales. This is not fantasy at all. In fact, it's, it's, uh, it's been done before. I mean, we, we, the, the imagery here of, of the Lord raining coals on the wicked and fire and sulfur, where do we read that? It's Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, where God destroyed the city because of his righteous judgment. And his judgment is coming again, 2 Peter 3, 7. In fact, right now, the only reason it hasn't come is because God is patient, because he is long-suffering, because he's weighing the world, but his righteous judgment will come. Now, I don't know how that strikes you this morning. I mean, many in our day, we don't like, we don't like to hear verses like that. We don't like to hear sermons that talk about that. Isn't God love? Can't God 
just be loved. That's the part I love about God. Why can't he be more like I want him to be? And so it goes. And maybe you're trying to put the pieces together this morning. Church, God's righteous anger against evil, that is his righteous wrath, his righteous anger against evil and wickedness is a natural and necessary part of his love. Think about it. If God loves everything that is pure, everything that is beautiful, everything that is holy, then he must hate everything that is not, everything that is set against it. If Becky and I just celebrated our wedding anniversary this last week, and if I said to her, you know, Becky, I really love you a lot, but if an intruder comes into our home and I do nothing, I just sit back, I, I don't do anything. Is she going to think that I love her? Of course not. And you wouldn't have any reason to think that I love her. And God would be less than God if he did not hate evil. And his love for his people would just be a fraud then, wouldn't it? It would be fickle. It would be so oftentimes like our love for one another. And here David draws great confidence that not only does God see everything, that not only does God uh, judge, but his confidence is that there is a day coming, brothers and sisters, when the foundations of the world really will give way. 2 Peter 2.12. There actually will be a day of judgment, righteous judgment, when the foundations of the world really will give away. And David actually has hope for that day. His confidence is in the God who does the judging on that day. And so for us as Christians, we're to actually live in light of that day. We're actually to live with that day in mind. So how do we do that? Well, here's our third lesson. Take refuge in God and do what is right. Take refuge in God and keep doing what is right. This is verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. As the world around us shakes, as you and I become more and more aware that, boy, we are not in control. That there are circumstances and situations in our lives that are completely out of our control. We do need to be sure that we continue to act righteously when it is in our control, that we continue to act justly, that we make it our goal to live holy lives, self-controlled lives, upright lives. Why? Because the Lord loves righteous deeds, and his reward is for all those who faithfully do what is right. In fact, look at the promise of God right here in Psalm 11. It's a It's a profoundly precious promise for all those who trust in him, for all those who do find their refuge in God, who take refuge in him, they will see his face. Seeing God's face will only be a reward if you actually love him. If you don't love him, seeing God's face is not a reward. But for all those who love God, For all those who belong to him through faith in Jesus Christ, they will be kept secure. They will be preserved. All those who find refuge in God, who keep doing what is right before God, will see his face. 
that's going to be a glorious day. But between now and then, we should be under no illusion that doing good, doing what is right, when the, the very seams of the world around us appear to be breaking, we should be under no illusion that this is going to be easy. It's not. Another reminder this past week, some of you are familiar with this, a church that uh, we are familiar with uh, in Portland, Hinson Baptist Church, came under attack by an angry mob of pro protesters. So I think Monday night, about 100 people assembled, marched on the church. It's gospel-believing church filled with people like you and like me. This church rents office space to a nonprofit community coffee shop to an art studio, but its largest tenants is an organization called First Image. It's a local crisis pregnancy care center, post-abortion care ministry. I'm now quoting from an eyewitness who wrote this. After circling the block, a group of well-prepared and fully masked individuals broke off. Using umbrellas and masks to shield their identity from security cameras, they smashed almost every ground floor window on the side of the building that had not been boarded up and covered the building in vile graffiti aimed specifically at Christians. Few window AC units were damaged. There's a lot of glass to replace, graffiti to remove. But in answer to the prayers of many, there was no fire, there's no serious injuries, and no further attempts to damage the building. So how was this local church filled with very ordinary people like you and like me well, how are they responding? They're taking refuge in God and doing what is right and doing good deeds. And in this case, doing what is right means loving the very people who caused all that damage. It means loving their enemies, people with vastly different political viewpoints than they do. Here's their main prayer, and I'm quoting again that our members and staff, especially our coffee shop workers and First Image employees, would continue to have an open, welcoming, hospitable attitude toward our neighborhood. As persecution goes, this was mild. And we're not surprised because Jesus warned us of it, John 15, 20. But we don't want this to be an opportunity for the enemy to sow seeds of fear, of bitterness, or suspicion that would cause us to pull back. We want to be those who demonstrate the truth and power of the gospel, as we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So praise God for Hinson Baptist Church and for the saints there. Pray for them. I hope you do. Continue to pray for them. They're finding refuge in God and committing themselves to doing what is right, to doing good, and God will bless. God will reward. God will win the day, then and now. Church, that's our calling as well. Our calling is when the foundations of the earth appear to be shaking, that we are a people who will take refuge in God, we will find refuge in God, we will resist the temptation to flee and to cower and to run away in fear, and we will do what is right. And we will keep doing what is right. And what is right? Well, doing right means we... We continue to, to preach the gospel like we're doing. That we're, we're continuing to call people to Christ because he's the only answer for the, for the sinful, wayward, wicked human heart. He's your answer and he's mine. We of all people should know that. This gospel's not just for us. It's for every man, woman, boy, and girl. 
That's why we sing songs that exalt Christ. That's why when we gather for corporate worship, we, we do the things we do. That's why we have home groups. That's why we have discipleship groups. That's why we have a responsibility, a sacred responsibility to one another to, to make sure that, that we don't waver, that we don't falter because we're all tempted to flee. I mean, I'm tempted to flee pretty much every time I drive home on a Sunday morning. There's enough temptation there to say, you know what, maybe I don't come back. I don't know if and when an angry mob is going to show up in our parking lot. It could happen. It might happen. And if it does, it's not just going to be an angry mob that shows up, right? God will be here. Our God will be present. Our God will be with us. And so we'll stand together, united by our common faith in Christ, believing that this precious gospel message, there is no more important message in the world. And it's going to cost us. Potentially already has. But it, it could cost us in different ways a year or two or three or five from now. And so we're going to have to, well, we're going to have to help each other, aren't we? Because we're going to face that temptation to flee, to cower, to be afraid. We're going to have to help each other find our ultimate refuge in God, and we're going to really have to encourage each other to keep doing what is right. What is right before God. Just like the millions of saints have done in church history, just like our brothers and sisters in Portland are doing, just like I pray that we would do as well. As we close, here's the question this morning. Will you be ready for that day? Should it come a whole lot sooner than you think? Will you be ready for that day? Will will we be ready as a church to say, you know what? Even when the foundations of this physical building, even when baseball bats are smashing our cars in the parking lot and, I don't know, there's rocks coming through the windows and maybe this, this building is set on fire, Even if that happens, would we be ready to say, like David, you, Lord, in you, you're our refuge. We're going to trust you. Let's pray.